Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. Today, we are looking again at the strategic challenges posed by China's recent military buildup. Earlier this month, the Department of Defense released the new China Military Power Report, showing significant increases in their nuclear arsenal, among other things, putting China on pace to have at least a thousand warheads by 2030. But it's China's navy that is among the most dramatic aspects of its expansion, transforming over the past two decades from a diesel-powered coastal force to a near-peer competitor with the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Our guest today is retired Admiral Scott Swift, former commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet from 2015 to 2018. During his 40-year career, Admiral Swift served as a naval aviator and commanded at all levels, including FAA Team Weapons School, aircraft carrier-based squadrons, and ultimately the U.S. 7th Fleet forward deployed to Japan. Admiral Swift, welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you, John. It's great to be here with you today. So even in just chatting with you beforehand, uh, I think we're going to be talking at a variety of levels about the challenges that China poses to the U.S., both strategically and tactically, and the two different timeframes that those approaches present, or, or one, the two timeframes that we really need to be thinking of it in terms. Uh, but I want to start looking at, I, I want to start by looking at the current state of affairs in the military balance between the US and China in the Pacific theater. And, and then we can talk about what the trend lines indicate. Uh, so let's talk about naval power. That's, that's your background. Uh, and it's the area where the US and China have had a lot of direct confrontations just in terms of gray zone attacks and uh, kind of the provocative incursions uh, towards Taiwan. How do the two forces compare today? How do you see that comparison? Uh, it's a great question, John, and, and this would turn into a three-hour podcast, I think, to fully, uh, fully address <laughs> I don't that. There, we, we have some <laughs> listeners who probably wouldn't mind that at all. <laughs> we, uh, you know, I, I still value uh, my relationship with MIT for the Center for International Studies and, and the year specifically of the fellowship that I had there because we could take a semester to delve in, into these kinds of, of questions. Um, but let me, so first of all, I would say uh, you use the term near peer, and I think a better term is peer competitor. Uh, but as, as we talked just shortly uh, before um, coming onto the podcast, I think it's really important that uh, we, the collective we, is not not just the military, but uh, the United States whole of government, as well as our allies, partners, and friends, that um, we think about the challenges that we face in, in the context of uh, thinking about them strategically, developing a, a strategic vision, ideally a, 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 a grand strategy, but at least a strategic vision. Uh, from that uh a vision, develop an operational plan, a framework, and then from that operational plan, develop the tactical actions and activities that are supported of that, that that plan supports, which in turn supports that strategic vision. That's what we're facing with China. And in that context, China isn't a near-peer competitor. They're a peer competitor. They have a grand strategy. They have regional strategies. And what we're seeing is the application of that strategy. And part of the application of that, that strategy is the growth of, of their Navy. Um, to put a point on it, there was a recent article, and in fact, I just read it today, it could have been published in the last couple of days, about uh, the fact that uh, 
they now have a second carrier, one that they have built themselves, not just purchased and modified. And uh, there's a large dialogue about what is the, the, the significance of that. Um, the same thing associated with these uh, targets that have been ob- observed in the, the shape of U.S. carriers and U.S. naval vessels. Um, interesting that they've got a carrier with a with a DDG-sized platform that appears to mimic a, a, a U.S. Right. DDG that's 300 miles away. You know, right. in my mind, is that a coincidence or is that reflective of an understanding of this broadening concept of a distributed yeah, maritime they, operations? They've, they've used these these very, very specific U.S. silhouettes in, in a number of instances of the missile tests they used an AWAC model on, on a Correct. runway for. Her. So, yeah, and it's very it's they both use kind of a scale version of one of the carriers as well as, you know, some, kind of some more right. f- full full size silhouettes for for these tests. So as a direct with that context as a direct answer to your to your question I would say it's interesting to me but not fascinating. What's fascinating to me is what the strategic implications behind all that. These are tactical actions the the characterization the shape of those carriers um uh, of uh, the things that we are seeing in the growing size of the PRC Navy. Um the the question is what is the, the operational plan that those tactical units support in their growth? And what is the strategic objectives? Uh, so it's this broader context of how I view the first and second island chain as the context of activities, the whole of government PRC activities that you see within Africa, that you see within the EU specifically. Um, it's interesting to me. I don't think you can have a conversation about the growth of the PLAN Navy without having a, a, a conversation about the growth of response of free and open democracies to the implications of this growth, what it might be. I think in terms of uh, the reports of uh, Germany's increased interest in the Pacific, both from a naval perspective as well as a Luftwaffe perspective, the deployment of Queen Elizabeth II and um, the multiple ships that have attached themselves from different countries at different times, those with an interest in the Black Sea have been attached to Queen Elizabeth there based on the instability and uncertainty that they see at play, mainly from a Russian perspective. But if you look at other countries, they've attached themselves to uh, the opportunity that Queen Elizabeth presents in the Indo-Asia Pacific as well. And this just is, this isn't a military statement. This is a diplomatic. This is a, a, a national interest right. uh, statement. Right. So it's the details. It's interesting to me what's happening w- with the carriers or the individual shoot, ships, Luyang 3s, Renhais, very formidable platforms in of themselves. But what do they mean in the collective? I'll, I'll pause at this point. There's another element of command and control that applies here, too, that, that is uh, attached to this question. But I'll defer to you if, if that's an area that you want to get into at some point in this podcast. No, I, I, absolutely. I think that that's, you know, a, a key component of it. I mean, and, you know, we we talk about the Navy or we talk about the um, the rocket forces uh, or we talk about cyber. The point is, is that all of those elements are driven by a very, you know, their grand strategy, I think, is very out in the open. I mean, G has been very vocal about, you know, their uh, road initiative, their approaches to uh, economic relationships and basing strategies in Africa. Uh, it, it They're very explicit about their increasing their ability to project not just military power, but economic power uh, worldwide. 
So if you work backwards from that, uh, how do you see the strategic reasoning behind the buildup from the Chinese perspective? One interpretation of it is that it's a completely rational buildup, that if their grand strategy is uh, expanding their economic influence globally, they're extremely vulnerable in the sense that they are very dependent on that sea access on their eastern border. And there is, you know, the U.S. Navy right on their doorstep right there. How much is that the the threat of their vulnerability, both in terms of, uh, you know, energy uh, and shipping as well as exports? How much of this is a rational response? How much of this is a strategy that is driven by perhaps a, a perceived contraction of of america in in its in its influence over the world uh another great uh, uh question john and this is if you don't mind if uh, i'm going to take a moment to uh to unpack this um but in direct response um it is both it, it is it's very rational and i i think that um uh, the PRC is, has taken advantage of this retrenchment, this retraction of, of the U.S. On, on the global stage that has occurred. And I'm not critical. Uh, it, uh, it would be easy if I could be single out a, a single administration to, to be critical. But this is a, a, a process that has been evolving really since the end of the Cold War. You know, this, what the Cold War dividend is the fact that that we could relax and stop thinking about the importance of grand strategy. And I, and I think that approach it can't be attributed to, to any one individual or, or party or, or uh, administration. It's we just took our eye off the ball and it's going to take a while to a little bit of batting practice here to, to get back up to speed, to use a, a, a sports analogy. Uh, so the, the uh, my my characterization of it is, yes, uh, it, it's really interesting to me, this this latest uh, conversation that the uh, deputy foreign minister well, the vice foreign minister in China made the comment recently about uh, the U.S. Uh, approach uh, from, I believe it was a cyber perspective, uh, was another example of the U.S. containing China. We, we should be very careful that, that I don't think it is in our own self-interest to contain China. We, we are all advantaged by a growing China. Where we are disadvantaged, where uh, China embraces a... Uh, mechanisms for changing the rules-based system that are outside the norms that were established 75 years ago and have been uh, core to the great success of this international rules-based system. The competition that, that, that we face with, with uh, China, um, I agree with the, the naming convention change of, of this peer competition or near-peer competition. It truly is a strategic competition which is more inclusive. I use the example of GW is the example, very inclusive approach. You know, you, you, you talk about a, a, a flotilla of the willing, you know, people have attached and, and detached themselves as their national interest ebb and flow based on the geographic position of uh, the, the uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, strike group. Uh, so in that context and thinking more broadly about, uh, our approach to China, the, the, the competition is, is at its core economic in nature. It's about the mechanisms that we sustain the economic growth of, uh, of the world. That's where all of our interests are, our collective interests are. 
Um, security and, and the elements of that, security for security's sake has little value. So building a military just for the military, I, I don't see the value in that. The question is, why should the nation, any nation, invest itself in a large military? And it's to provide security. Security as either deterrent. I think the Secretary of Defense is exactly right with collective deterrence. That's kind of getting to, to where your line of questioning may be going. But we not only should... I don't think that we can do it on our own anymore. The United States can do it on its own. And I don't think it's it's useful to do it on our own. We should be looking for like-minded partners to pair with in this broader collective deterrence uh, approach that the secretary is advocating for. So security has value when it's applied either to sustain stability or regain stability. Because without stability, you cannot have prosperity. People are not going to invest themselves emotionally, personally, collectively, economically in spaces that are inherently destabilized. And so you have a Chinese system that advances itself, a a PRC system that advances itself by creating instabilities so that the system that is uh, has uh, natural friction points with the international system can continue to expand. That's the core of what's happening in this competition. You have a Chinese Communist Party economic system, a PRC economic system, that is not compatible for growth within the current international rules-based system. That's what's creating these frictions. So yes, a larger uh, PLAN is focused on the direct defense of China, but it's also focused on China's ability to continue to grow, which is a national security issue in the eyes of China. Uh, and I'll use one example uh, um, before I pause here. And that is, you have to ask yourself the question, why is uh, the Chinese counter-piracy task force still deploying to the Horn of Africa? And the, the reason is it's a useful foil to continue the most important part of those deployments, which occurs after its yield toe relief by the follow-on uh, counter-piracy strike group to demonstrate Chinese national interest around Africa and sales around Africa, up in, into Norway, you know, up into those spaces. It's the same thing that Mahan was advocating for and that we apply from a U.S. naval perspective. There's an interesting book that, that Tom Mencken uh, published back in in uh, 2012 that's informative as well. But let me pause at this point. I, I may have ex- exceeded the interest of, of your audience. So let me let me turn it back to you as, as moderator. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, I, th- I think that there is a perception that these buildups are towards an end of um, displacing the U.S. from the region. And the U.S. has determined its strategy to that global interests halfway, you know, on the complete opposite side of the Pacific are our national interests. China is now transforming to have a similar, dis, you know, uh, definition of its own interests. So, so given that that's at least the shape of the strategy, I don't know that it's that I don't know that there is a clear strategy on the, uh, ha- on behalf of this administration or, or the previous one of how to accomplish that, uh, preferred peaceful coexistence and, you know, compatible with deterrence, compatible with China's desires for us to not be there, compatible with its desires to expand its definition of what its its maritime borders are. 
So given all that, we have these instabilities that you're talking about and these points of, of friction. And the the Congress, you know, they just passed the National Defense Authorization Act, the Funding Act for, for the military. There have been a number of assessments by this administration of, you know, what weapons programs, what size of the Navy to invest in to service that larger strategy. How do you see you know, where the rubber meets the road is the NDAA uh, appropriations, which is largely to, you know, writ large is keep the size of the Navy with small increases, you know, phase out older platforms. And, and, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a huge bill. There's, there's There's a lot in there that we could talk, but how do you see what our current funding approach is compared to what is largely a, a, you know, the, the military power report is a, is a report about what, is, what the Chinese are doing. Yeah. Let, let me back into that a little bit, John. First of all, I would say, uh, in my view is deterrence is not a strategy. It's part of an operational plan that would support a strategy. Uh, so the strategy, um, if you're talking about the PRC, I think you're talking about a regional strategy, which nests underneath a grand strategy. I've, there's a whole nother lecture that goes into grand strategy and regional strategies. But but suffice it to say, I, I think from a regional perspective, it nests underneath uh, with respect to PRC, the, specifically the Indo-Asia Pacific, which is where their, their national uh, uh, security interests are sharpest, understandably so. Um, that it is uh, really about uh, supporting not only the international rules-based system, but also the mechanisms that have been established to change the system. Those mechanisms are uh, uh, discourse and diplomacy where people disagree. I mean, we, we see it we see it between this this uh, Oxus and. Uh, 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 the deal to France's uh, sub- submarine plans to Australia. Actually, and, a little and, bit, and, and a little bit different. I, I think that that is a trilateral relationship that was developed of where there are common national security interests, where can uh, the, the UK, Australia, and US come together on common ground and share common views. That's what that's about. The submarine issue was caught up in that. Um, I, right. I that's why it was in the headlines because exactly, of the friction with exactly. the, France had previously been right. trying to sell to the to the Australians. Yeah. But how I bring that up, France didn't impose trains, trade sanctions against the U.S., uh, Australia, and the U.K. because of that. It generated discourse and dialogue about how do we resolve these differences. That's the international rules based system in in uh, in execution. So I think the, the strategy should be about um, that point is using force and coercion to change the international rules-based system sufficient to allow uh, what, in my view, is a unique PRC economic and governance model uh, to coexist uh, with, with a model that, that um, you know, is just it's, it's difficult for them to, uh, uh, to associate with. Set, set that aside. Um, the, the uh, growth of, of the military, of the U.S. military, we need to be realistic about it. Uh, uh, so this, this idea of, a, of a, you know, a matching the Chinese, I'll go back to, I, I touched on a, a book that, that Tom Mencken 
uh, wrote, I believe, when he was still at the Naval War College, published, I believe, in, in 2014. It was Competitive Strategies for the 21st Century. I, I read that book, and, and I, I reread it every year from 2012 uh, until I retired in, in 2018 as a, as a PAC fleet commander. It's extremely, it's really interesting because it, the first half of it is a, a look at history about um, essentially anti-access area denial and how we uh, succeeded, how, how the international community succeeded uh, with respect to the competition with Russia, and then took that model and applied it to the competition. Again, this is back in 2012, uh, to the PRC challenges that were growing with anti-access area denial. It really came out of the Taiwan crisis in, in uh, uh, 1995. And uh, Tom was absolutely predictive, if you read the book, as to where we are today. So this isn't a, relevation, a, a revelation in my mind. This is a kind of a natural progression. Uh, you can do the predictive analysis and, and recognize where we are today and, and with respect to uh, the PLAN and where the PLAN is going to be in 2025 and, and uh, 2030 as we go out. This is about um, how uh, nations... Uh, behave and interact in international space. So we talk about freedom navigation, usually when we talk about the size of, of the PLAN compared to the to the U.S. Navy. And this is why collective deterrence is, is uh, right. so important, especially with respect to this, this current uh, debate and dialogue over Taiwan. Well, we are not, our, our freedom of navigation is not being constrained by the PRC just in the maritime domain, it's happening in the business domain, the economic domain, the legal domain, personal information domain, all of these domains, it's being constrained because their system is, is not fully compatible with the international rules-based system. So they're using force and coercion to modify the international rules-based system sufficient to allow their system to continue to grow. That's what's happening in the South China Sea, but the South China Sea is a Petri dish. It's expanded well beyond that. If you look at what's happened in Djibouti with the People's Armed Forces Maritime Militia units that were precursors to the development of, of call it, you know, you call it what you want, but it's a base. Um, you see it with uh, the extension of the first island chain all the way up to the Indian Ocean anchored in Gwadar. You see the second island chain extended all the way across uh, the lower uh, islands of, between the islands of, of Malaysia and uh, uh, the continent of Australia through Djibouti and anchored in, or through uh, Diego Garcia and anchored in Djibouti. So you have to think in this broader strategic concept, it's not just the Renhais, the Luyang threes, the submarine force. It's, those are, are artifacts of the operational plan that's being driven, developed, and supportive of what the strategic objectives are. So that goes back. You asked about the budget. So the, the military budget is important. But we, we need to also look at the investments uh, that are, are being directed in shaping through budget what the State Department should be doing, what the Department of Energy should be doing, what the Department of Commerce should be doing. All of their, their peer organizations within the PRC system are actively involved in the operational planning and the tactical execution of their grand and regional strategies. We are not. There, there is not a military solution in the near term to this competition unless you're talking about going to war. That's what the military does. So we can be a deterrent 
and we can be a supporting factor for a whole uh, uh, element of a whole of government approach. But as uh, Secretary Mattis made very clear when Secretary Tillotson was in charge of the State Department and the, the crisis du jour was North Korea at the time, Mattis went out of his way to continue to stress that DOD is in support of State Department. That's a major concern to me. So I get it. My background is a military, and it's natural that we have a discussion about the NDAA and the size of the U.S. Navy. That's very important dialogue, but we can't lose sight of the broader dialogue of what are we doing as a whole-of-nation approach to be competitive with a PRC whole-of-nation approach. Right. Well, I mean, you wouldn't know that the DOD was in support of state if you looked at their budgets, uh, <laughs> I think, or the previous administration's treatment of the State Department, I think, was largely sidelining it in most instances. And even prior to that, Obama really focused on diplomacy via the NSC uh, rather than through the State Department. Given all that, I, I, I think it's true that most politicians, at least most you know, in, in Congress, do see the primary tool of deterrence in service of whatever the larger strategy is as the military and yeah. as, you know, and as funding for that is the prime lever for determining the tactical ways in which right. the U S uh, deters China. Uh, you, right. I mean, you also have, as, as you were alluding to, you've, you've got two really, really different systems. I mean, China as a part of its, state-owned corporations makes requirements on civilian vessels, fishing vessels, ferries to meet military standards because they see them, you know, not potentially, but explicitly as a part of that PLAN plan. So, you know, I was just reading recently about a a, a ferry that's, you know, like 45,000 tons, you know, that's basically an America-class amphibious assault vehicle that they literally are testing you know, rolling amphibious assault, you know, vehicles off the, off the back of that's, that's a very different way of understanding both the funding of the military as well as the civilian economy. Yeah. And, and again, those places overseas and places like Djibouti, you know, the, the economic investments are, are inextricably linked with their military links. So, I mean, how do you, how do you separate those two? If, if it's not, uh, if, if you're facing a peer adversary that sees the world in those terms, yeah. uh, how, how can you not approach it on some level in terms of defense spending? No, I agree. So, so their defense, I'm not denying that defense spending is a large part of it. And I, and I do think um, maybe to your point, the comparison of budget is, is not useful. Their defense is extremely impo- uh, expensive to sustain the required infrastructure. I mean, I, I had a, when I was a PAC fleet commander, I had a $13 billion yearly budget just to run the fleet. That's not payroll. That's not maintenance. That's just to run the fleet. So it's, you've got to be, I, I'm not advocating for this comparison of budget. There should be a discussion of, you know, do we have all of the, the various stovepipe budgets and should they be stovepipes? Set that aside uh, for a minute because you made another important point of the state-owned enterprise. I talk, we, oftentimes people talk about the importance of doing things faster. I'm not interested in that. We need to do things with velocity. Velocity gives a, is the difference between speed and velocity is a vector, is a direction. We need a direction that we need to go as a nation. The PRC has that vector. 
as a nation of where they're headed. So there's natural alignment within the population, the Chinese people, as well as the government. There's this further alignment that there are, we went through this when Admiral Keating was in charge of NORTHCOM, and we had the, the hurricanes uh, come in and devastate um, Louisiana, and this DISCA discussion of how much the military could directly support this incredible devastation that occurred in the the uh, civilian population, because we have, based on our democracy, we have these very uh, strict and clear lines of what you can use the military for inside your borders. It is completely opposite with the PRC. There's an expectation of the military to work together, right? With right. with the not just state-owned enterprise, but now with. Uh, the growing uh, size of the private enterprise uh, uh, organizations within China. That gives them velocity. That's a powerful engine. But we should recognize it for what it is, uh, that we can't control that. That's internal to China. That's their model. Um, But we should be uh, having a conversation about, in my mind, all the more reason that we're facing this whole of government approach, state-owned enterprise, combining military capability, science and technology, RTD and E, S and T investments. That's all one big monolithical uh, uh, structure that we're facing, and we're going to put the U.S. military against that with its budget. It's it doesn't make any sense. We have to take this from a whole of, of uh, government approach. So I'm not diminishing the importance of, of the, the military budget. I, I will say, coming back to your previous question, I, I'm not quibbling over the things that that uh, Congress is saying we should invest in. But what I do say is we should be more realistic. So when we talk about the size we need to build the U.S. Navy uh, to, we should have a discussion of what infrastructure do we have to support both the growth of the Navy and the sustainment of the Navy? One of the greatest elements of deterrence, and this is what I see that, that, that the CNO uh, Gilday is pushing at, is readiness. You can build an incredible force, but if it's not fully manned, if it's not fully trained, if it doesn't have uh, fully resourced magazines, both at the time in the vessel, as well as uh, magazines ashore to, to resupply them. If you don't have a logistics system that can resupply them in contested spaces, um, then you've got a bit of a shell game as far as what deterrence is. So in answer to that part of your question, I think it's very important that we be realistic about the investments to be made and can we outbuild the Chinese? I'm not sure it's relevant. Look at, so China just did a a, a circumnavigation with Russia of uh, the Japanese islands. Interesting to me, but not fascinating. I know it's fascinating to to Japan. I'm back to the Queen Elizabeth deployment. Seven, eight different nations participating in that. When, When China has seven or eight nations waiting in line to team with it, what with its grand strategy or its regional strategy, then I'll stop to think maybe we don't have this right. But despite the, the the retrenchment of the United States that has occurred in recent history, we we still have a long line of partners. I'll use TPP as an example. You know, I, I was a big supporter of TPP without getting into the politics of it. Well, the value of these international partners is we have TPP 11 now, where where Japan and Australia stepped up, developed that structure, 
and left the door open for the U.S. to join. So these, the, if anything, the international partnering has gotten stronger, not weaker, with the recognition that they needed to step up more, as, as several administrations have said, uh, to support the common concerns and this collective deterrence, as Secretary of Defense calls it. So uh, I, I think that's a, a that's a very sophisticated way of looking at it, and I, I think that's that that sounds right on. It sounds like exactly what people should be hearing who are involved in policy. What you said brings up two questions in mind. One is just you mentioned readiness. You know, we've had the Bonham Richard report came out, and recently the USS Connecticut. Uh, you know, do you see those as canaries in the coal mine? Do you see some red flags on on readiness uh, in in the fleet? So I have to record. Uh, you bring those two points up. Uh, uh, I would not describe them. I, I think that we put ourselves at risk if we characterize those two two examples as canaries in the coal mine. Um, and I've got to mention the 17 sailors that we lost in the uh, collisions of uh, McCain and Fitzgerald. Absolutely. You know, that happened on my watch when I was the Pacific Fleet commander. Those families will never be whole again. Absolutely. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want to relitigate what led to those, those collisions. But throughout my 40-year career, Readiness, the, the metric of successful readiness of, of being fully uh, ready was 70% in the Navy. Cut, juxtapose that to the Marine Corps where it was 100%. They refer to themselves as a 911 force. So we had this 30% deficit that was based on our ability to, to fully fund the Navy that we had because we were still, we had to modernize and buy the Navy. And it, this isn't one CNO. It's it's not one Secretary of Navy. This is a decision that wasn't made just by the Navy. I mean, these budgets are approved all the way up through Congress. So this isn't an issue of blame. This is back to the issue of, of reality in my mind. Now, the Bonham Richard uh, uh, issue may have been down to one disgruntled sailor. You know, who knows what, what the, the trigger was. But the fact that it was in a shipyard um, I would describe as as minimally minimally manned, certainly from a weekend perspective in the duty section. But any ship that goes in the shipyard is not one to for, to be a primary candidate for manning. It can't be because we have this sailor force that has to be shifted around to support those units that are that are deploying. You know this tiered readiness approach. Um, that, in my mind, I think CNO is is spot on and continuing to come back to the fact that we have to, to get this, this readiness model right if, if our deterrence is going to be relevant in the eyes of those that we're trying to deter and those that we're trying to, to reinforce with confidence that we're the right partner to team with. In, in this competition, there's a natural desire to team with the United States in this competition that we have with PRC. But I, I will tell you from a military perspective, there are more fence setters that there were in the past because they see this growing China, as, as many people are talking about, you know, the size of the of the Navy, um, the fact that they shape targets in, in the, the, the silhouette of, of uh, U.S. Navy platforms. That's sending a message to, to 
the U.S. public and the, the U.S. media, U.S. Congress, policymakers, um, but also sending a message just as clearly to um, our allies, partners, and friends, as well as those that may have an interest of uh, teaming with the PRC. Um, it, I, I, again, I, I see those silhouettes as interesting, but not fascinating, but I understand the context in which China presents those. We need to think more broadly and deeply about it and have those kinds of, of questions with our allies, partners, and friends. And the result is, I will point to some successes. One is quads. Uh, I, uh, uh, AUKUS is another one that I uh, mentioned. Um, and there's several others. I won't, I won't take uh, time to go into them, but I see continued alignment of like-minded uh, nations who share common concerns with the growing instability and uncertainty within the region based on those that are using force and coercion to drive change in the international rules-based system as opposed to discourse and diplomacy. The challenge is those that are occupying a neutral space um, because of, of their size, they don't want to get the bet wrong. So they're less vocal about that, uh, that uh, teaming from a deterrent perspective, collective deterrent, than they were willing to in the past. That's, that's concerning to me. And I think that's why, back to your point of investments that Congress is making through the NDAA, uh, is, is extremely important. I don't want to diminish its importance. So what is the vector that should be pursued in, in the velocity of that, that strategy beyond just simply deterrence? So this isn't, this isn't about uh, uh, containing uh, China. This, this is about uh, standing up for the rules-based system that has, uh, based on its security structures, resulted in the stability that has enabled the sustained growth of the global economy. And that's what we should be focused on. The vector that we should be on is, yes, uh, military as a deterrence, but we need a... Uh, so the, the uh, trade sanctions, I, I think, are, are great tools to, to uh, demonstrate where behaviors are outside the norm, force and coercion, and bring them back into the discourse and dialogue. But they should be much more targeted based on that vector, based on that strategic grand strategy objective, as well as the regional strategy ob objective. Um, we should be critical where NATO is, is, uh, uh, needs to be adjusted in the, in the context of uh, U.S. national security. But we also need to be sensitive about the downside of that and the opportunities that those criticisms create for strategic competitors such as China or, or Russia. So we need to be more thoughtful. Let me give you some positive examples. There, there is this tension between the cost of modernization, if, if you call it a divest to invest. Um, I'm a big believer in F-35, for example. And I'll, get, I'll give you, uh, uh, if you take the total number of operational F-35s that are out and operating in consequential ways that are directly associated with collective deterrence, it's stunning. And, and we're not talking about that enough. We had Marine F-35Bs embarked for the entire journey, the entire cruise of uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, we had uh, the USS Sullivan's permanently attached to uh, that strike group for its entire cruise. Netherlands had 
had destroyers that that cycled in and out. There's a there's a recent report on strategic tanking. I, I wish I could attribute it. That slips my mind which one of the think tanks published it. But I think it's excellent. It, it talks in the context that we need to, and to me anyway, what I read from it, is we need to think strate- differently about strategic tanking. There's a STRATCOM element that's critically important from a nuclear deterrence perspective, uh, but there's also a strategic imperative through um, the mechanisms that China has, that PRC has developed to circumvent which it, what has been the, the traditional strategy of uh, military application of power in the Pacific. We need to rethink that strategy before we start buying a whole bunch of different stuff. Let's rethink the strategy of how we're applying the things that we're doing already. That's what that that uh, strategic tanking uh, thought piece spoke to me. Those are the kinds of positive things that are happening. The the Navy pursuing um, next Columbia class submarine critically important from a, a deterrence perspective. There's no AT A two AD that I'm aware of that applies to the uh, U.S. submarine force. I mean, they they go wherever international allows law allows, and no one knows it. It's it's an incredible capability, and it will be a long time before China keeps up to that. Carriers, you know, you know, China's building of carriers. It has taken us generations to perfect um, carrier operations. We need to think differently about it. I, I don't want to go into a public context, but the Navy's doing that. I think carriers are eminently survivable, but you have to take a look at at the context of, of the entire uh, uh, threat kill chain that's arrayed against it. There's opportunities there to continue to operate in meaningful ways. And I, I'll say, as an aviator, I, I'll say what my aviation friends don't don't like me to to say publicly. I'm not a carrier advocate, but tell me what the alternative is. So we're going to get rid of carriers. What are we going to replace that firepower with? And why do you think they're not relevant? DF-21, DF-26. The longer the longer the kill chain is that's required to support a weapon, the more vulnerable it is. The kill chain to support DF-21 and 26 is huge. There are multiple opportunities to interdict that kill chain. I'll leave it at that. So there's an awful lot that we don't talk about. There's an awful lot that China does talk about in my opinion, is because we have a lot to talk about that doesn't make sense to make public. China doesn't have a lot to talk about. So they build carrier replicas and DDG replicas in the desert to to heighten the hype about uh, what they do have. Well, I think we will have to leave it there for today. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I would love to talk for another three hours about this, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time. And our, our listeners, please come on again uh, sometime and talk to us some more about this. Thank you so much, Admiral Swift. So, John, thank you as well, and thanks for your patience. This is a very, very complicated problem, and I especially, especially appreciate your series approach at getting – after this, this isn't just one podcast. And if you've got a listener that is listening in for the first time, but it would be worth your time to go back and review the previous podcast to help better understand this complex environment that that we are in. And I would encourage you to listen to further uh, podcasts as I will as well. So thanks for the the honor of inviting me uh, to come on, John, and, and I appreciate all the good work that you're doing as well.
Absolutely. And I'm just uh, in support of the larger team. And we've got David Craig, who's the editor here at Real Clear Defense. Uh, he sends out the Morning Recon newsletter on, on a daily basis. There's a link for that in the show notes. Uh, he's on top of all the news uh, that really matters for defense, national security, intelligence. Uh, really, these themes of China, it touches, as you mentioned, so many facets of our whole government and civilian forces from cyber to infrastructure to uh, not just the military expenditures. And, and I think that's that's a great way of looking at it. Completely agree. Thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinions on military defense and national security issues that matter. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.